Good morning. Welcome back from Thanksgiving vacation. It has become a tradition here at Goshen College on the Monday convocation right after Thanksgiving to have what has become known as the best of the semester speech convo. My name is Pat McFarlane. I'm Associate Professor of Communication and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event. I would like to introduce another of the oral comm professors, Seth Conley, who's here on my right, uh, Rachel Lapwit. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> Rachel Lapwit is also teaching oral communication this semester. Today we have five speakers, and they're going to be uh, speaking a variety of kinds of speeches. We're going to begin with Becca Augsburger, a first year from Kentucky. She'll be presenting a personal story. Second will be Ellie Hirschberger. She's a first year from Wakarusa, and she will be presenting a persuasive speech. Charles Dix Pardon me, Charles Dixon is next. He's a sophomore from Ohio, and he'll be presenting a personal story. Daisy Gaspar, who is a freshman, I'm sorry, a junior from Goshen, will be doing an informative speech. And last, Maddie Widrago will be presenting a personal story speech. He is a second year from Burkina Faso. So let's welcome our speakers today. One of the people in my life who I greatly admire is my great uncle Roger. To me, Roger is a symbol of adventure and excitement. During his life, he has spent many evenings in wildernesses, explored many woods, and spent endless days and nights fishing on the waters of the Pacific Northwest. But aside from his energetic spirit, Roger was also very dedicated to his family. He worked very hard with their well-being close to heart, and in the end, he ended up giving up his life for them. Roger was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and when he was a young adult, he moved to Ketchikan, Alaska to work for a logging company, and in exchange for his labor, he was given a small plot of unsettled land. After selecting a plot on an island surrounded by mountains and water, Roger and his family began building a house there, a project which would last about 20 years. During one winter in the year 2000, Roger and his family were almost done building the house, and they were working on a rock pathway leading from the boat dock up to the house at the top of the hill using rocks from a nearby island. Roger and his wife, Lana, decided to make one more load of rocks from a nearby island, and the girls decided to stay. They made it to the other side of the water and loaded up the boat with rocks, but on the way back across, the boat capsized, dumping Roger, Lana, and the rocks into the icy cold Alaskan water. Roger knew they had to get out of the water quickly, so he helped Lana on top of the boat, Unfortunately, the empty shore was closer than their house, so he began swimming in that direction, pushing the boat with Lana on it. By the time they got to the other end, 
Roger was stiff and hypothermia had already set in, so he knew that the chances of him making it through the night were slim. So while he sat on the shore, he urged Lena to keep moving and made her promise that no matter what happened to him, that she would keep herself moving to be there for his girls. As he began to slip away, he also gave her specific messages to deliver to each of his daughters in case he didn't last through the night. Roger passed away after a few hours, leaving Lana to keep herself moving until help came in the morning. Both Roger and Lana were heroes that night. Roger was a hero because he sacrificed himself for his wife, Lana, in the event that she could still be there for his girls. And Lana was a hero because even after her husband passed away, she forced herself to keep moving so that she could be there for their daughters as well and deliver his messages to them. Whenever I think of this story, I can't help but think about how close and dear my own family is to me. I have always tightly, or held tightly my bonds with my parents and my brother, and this story serves as a constant reminder to me that no matter what difficulties or tragedies lie ahead, family will always be there to help pull you through. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Famous words by former President John Kennedy. Many of us know these words, but how many actually take them to heart and have done something for our country? I'm not talking about joining the military or running for president. I'm talking about volunteering. Although the words of JFK were said many years ago, they are still very prevalent in today's society. A 2004 estimate done by the World Book, which is published by the CIA, showed that 12% of Americans are living below the poverty line. A 2009 estimate showed that 9.3% of Americans are unemployed. Many are living in dire housing situations. 25-year-old Mary Gallagher, shown here with her three children and 16-year-old sister, lived with three other people in a small two-bedroom apartment that was also infested with cockroaches because they could not afford any other living situation. Jason and Casey Burt lived with their three children, all under the age of five, in a chuck-top camper such as this one because they could not afford to make payments on a house or apartment. Lawmakers today are relying more on volunteers than ever because of all the cuts in the budgets for social services and education. There are obviously people that would benefit from voluntary services, and I will now inform you how volunteering can affect people and society. Volunteering provides benefits to both the person receiving the service and the volunteers themselves. Mark Musick and John Wilson in their book, Volunteers, a Social Profile, say that the goal of volunteering is to provide help to others, a group, an organization, a cause, or the community at large, without the expectation of a material reward. In 2001, the United States government created a toolkit to be used in surveys to determine an act volunteering if it is not done for financial gain, is done by free will, and provided benefits to both an outside party and the volunteers themselves. The Gallaghers and the Burts were both lucky, and there were enough volunteers, and they each received a house from Habitat for Humanity. Many of us know that there are benefits to volunteering, but are unaware of what these benefits are and the degree that they can occur. 
One of the best things that we can do for our health is to learn to be more caring and compassionate. A quote by Stephen Post, who is the director for the Center for Medicine Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. Volunteering increases the levels of dopamine and endorphins in a person's body, which make a person feel happier. It also increases the levels of oxytocin, which decreases the amount of stress hormones. A study done of elderly couples over a period of five years showed that those who were involved in hands-on volunteering were half as likely to die during those five years. Corporate volunteering is when businesses help to organize and support their employees volunteering in the local community. This builds community support for the business and the employees, and the goal is to attempt to bridge employee, community, and business needs. College students, like ourselves, should volunteer at organizations that are related to our majors because it will help us build connections for a future job. Volunteering gives a person a new perspective on life because you encounter people from all different walks of life. In the 2009 fiscal year, Habitat for Humanity provided 61,170 families with either a new, renovated, or repaired house. Volunteering contributes to a better and safer society. A child who is involved in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program for 18 months is 46% less likely to use drugs. Volunteers are more civically engaged and are more knowledgeable about politics and government. Volunteering has also been associated with a reduced risk of getting pregnant, out of wedlock, a lower chance of failing school, and getting suspended. It has also been shown that areas that have higher volunteer rates have had fewer burglaries. There is a belief that a job is only worthwhile if it is paid. There was a survey done of volunteered and paid EMTs, and the paid EMTs said that volunteers were amateurish, unreliable, emotional, and trauma junkies, while the volunteers only spoke of their goals to provide support for the community. Paid workers are also frustrated that volunteers can come and go whenever they please. Other people say that the amount of time and stress that accompany volunteering make it not worthwhile, especially because one person cannot possibly solve all of the world's problems. And while it is true that certain types of volunteering require a bigger time commitment and thus can be more stressful, A. Franklin Burgess Jr., a Superior Court judge from D.C., said we have to believe that we are fulfilling our responsibilities if we help one or two people along the way. Now that you know the benefits of volunteering, you can probably better see yourself in a voluntary role and what will happen if you don't volunteer. What would have happened to the Gallaghers and the Burts if there were no volunteers? Could you imagine yourself living with seven other people in a tiny apartment with cockroaches everywhere? Or not even having enough money to have a house or a place to live. This is what would have happened to them and many others if there were no volunteers. It is quite obvious that volunteering changes both the volunteers and those receiving the service. Although you are not likely to see immediate results, are you willing to sit back and let the suffering people continue to suffer because you can't give up your precious time? I would encourage all of you to participate in some type of volunteering over the upcoming Christmas break. Go home and pick up the phone and call a local organization or business in your community and volunteer.
love you, Parker. Uh, let me take you back to the year 2001. I was 11 years old and it was my first ever football game. And this was a big deal for my dad because he grew up as a big football fan. He showed me all his clippings, highlights, the school he went to, all his rivalries, all his biggest games, all of that. Well, it was a Saturday and we had to get up around 6.30 because uh, we had a game at nine. So we had to be at the field around 7.45, 8 o'clock. So when I was waking up, I had this real nervous feeling in me and I felt like I had to throw up. So I sprinted out of bed and I tripped over my little brother's toys. And that was not a good start because I almost messed up my ankle. So I went straight to the bathroom. I threw up a couple of times. Had the door shut, everything. The fan was on because it just, it was just horrible smelling there. So my mom comes, knocks on the door, and it's like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. She was like, you know what you should do? Take a shower. So I took a shower, and I don't know what kind of shower to take. I don't know if it take a hot shower or a cold shower, so I'm flipping from hot to cold, cold to hot, and I'm just, uh, I'm just so out of it. So I'm in, I'm in the bathroom drying off. My dad comes knocking on the door this time, and he's like, are you ready? I was like, yeah, I guess so. He said, go ahead and put on your stuff so we can get ready to go. So I'm in my room, I'm putting on my pants, my socks. Uh, we got t-shirts, which was pretty cool, I, I thought. Uh, so I went downstairs. And he was downstairs waiting with me with the tape so he can tape on my ankle so I won't roll nothing. So he sits me on this uh, island that we call back at our house. And he's sitting there taping me up. And the first thing he says to me, son, this is the start of our dream. And I was like, Dad, our dream, I'm the one out there about to get killed, and you're just going to be on the sideline watching. <laughs> so he's finishing taping me up. As soon as he gets done, I put on my cleats and everything. He tells me to get in our big white van. So we're driving, and I'm sitting here just thinking to myself, oh, my God, what's going to happen today? This is going to be a very interesting day. So while we're driving, we get close to the field. My dad tells me, who are we playing and why this game is so big to them. So the team we was playing is called the Gehenna Jaguars. And the reason why this was so big to them, because the person that coaches the Jaguars was one of his biggest arrivals that he played in high school. And come to find out later that day, he had a son that was named Charles also, which was also his father's name. So it just made it even worse for me. So I'm like, oh my God, what if I don't perform well? And he just, and I just go home and he just don't let me do nothing, don't play the PS2 or none of that. So we get to the field, right, and we're warming up. I'm warming up with the team and everything. All of a sudden, my stomach starts to hurt, so I had to go to the bathroom. So you already know what that meant. So I get done with that, and by the time I come back out, all my team, all my teammates are put on their pads, their jerseys and everything. So I'm doing the same. So we're starting to walk down to the field, and... For some reason, I looked over to my left and I just see my dad just making this little smirk that he always has on his face, like, it's game time, let's go, let's go. So we get down to the field and go to coin toss. Honestly, we got the ball, we got to receive it. But in Little League, you don't have kickoffs. You start the ball at the 35 and you run your offense from there. So it was the first play ever, my first play ever in my football career. Coach calls my number. He calls a 34 dive. Uh, so I hear that. So I'm even more nervous. Like, why would I get the first play? Oh my God. So I line up and I'm just inching towards the line. Don't even get in my stance. I'm just standing straight up. 
So I heard my boy Casey cause hype. So I shutter stepped a little bit, not knowing I was supposed to do that. And I get the ball and I just sprint off towards the middle of the field and I just break to the sideline for a 65 yard score, which was pretty awesome, I felt. Like all the nervousness was gone and everything. I was like, you know what? I think I got a knock for this. So I come back to the sideline and my dad's just jumping around, pointing at his dude like, yeah, take that, take that, take that. And I'm like, okay then, let's go. So later on that day, uh, I end up scoring another time, end up being them 28 to 14. Uh, I come back, so after the game, we get snacks and juice and all that. And my dad takes me to the side and was like, son, I'm very proud of you. Our dream is starting off very well. So I'm like, okay, I can, I can buy that, I can buy that. So later on that day, I thought to myself, like, I found out that no matter how big, how, I mean, how much you're nervous, Whenever adrenaline kicks in, it's like the best feeling ever to have. Honestly, you can accomplish so much more. Thank you. A hundred and fifty thousand tomatoes, or about ninety thousand pounds of tomatoes. So many things one can do with all of that, but what can you do with all of those tomatoes in only one hour? Well, Buñol, a city in the southeast part of Spain, found the answer. Buñol is known for the world's largest tomato war, La Tomatina. Through my research, I found some informative information about the celebration, the history, and some tips of this event. I want to start by sharing some of the details of this traditional event. According to latematinatours.com, this war is held on the last Wednesday morning in August of each year. During this week, other festivities occur, but La Tomatina is the one that everybody waits for. It starts at 11 a.m. in the morning with a competition, and this competition consists of a two-story high pole covered with grease, and Whoever is brave enough must reach the top where a piece of la ham lies. Whether anybody reaches it or not, there is a signal that indicates the beginning of the war, and that war is just indicated by water cannons, and that begins, that indicates the beginning bizarre hour of tomato fights. Also, not to forget this, the traditional attire is to wear white. Yes, white. Now that you know what La Tomatina is like, um, I want to give you some tips um, given by BarcelonaLife.com. First, you should, you should take protective goggles and gloves. Second, you should squish the tomato before you throw it because it could hurt others. Third, you should take some waterproof, a waterproof bag to put clothes, extra clothes just to change in. Take old trainers because if you take flip-flops, they could get lost and you will definitely be stepped on. Take a waterproof disposable camera, that's if you want. And six, get there early to be at the center of where all the action will take place. Finally, I want to give you some history and other information on La Tomatina. After much, much research, it turned out that there's no specific reason for the creation of this tomato war. No significance at all. Well, according to an article by Rita Ehrlich, 
there is no one true explanation. Some say it was an accident, others say that it just started something that it was for fun, but we do know that it started in 1944. It was banned, though, in the 1950s for a while by the dictator Franco because he believed that it had no religious value, but eventually it returned. And lastly, La Tomatina brings about 45,000 tourists to a town of only 10,000 residents. Then also, Buñol spends about 90,000 euros, which is equivalent to about $114,000, and that money goes towards cleaning and health personnel, and of course, the tomatoes. Antoine, I hope that this information was appealing or interesting to you. It's a tradition that unites a lot of people around the world. Hopefully, you or I have the chance to experience it. At least, I know I would like to. Thank you. <laughs> There's something I would like to point out before I start. I'm from Burkina Faso, West Africa. <laughs> Coming to the United States is the dream of many young Africans. But at the same time, coming to the United States is one of the most complicated, one of the most challenging trips I have ever heard about. I had never thought about coming to the United States until one day a friend of mine came to my place and told me, hey, Madi, I heard about a scholarship and I think we should apply for it. It might work. Whoa, what's this idea? I said, oh, what are you talking about? Please do not put me in the middle of this. You know that people are not very honest in this country and mainly when it comes to scholarships, they give it to their grandparents, their cousins, and they don't give it to other people. So I don't want to waste my time for nothing. He told me, this scholarship is offered by the United States government and monitored by the United States Embassy. I said, okay, then it's serious. I can try. But for me, coming to the United States by a simple scholarship was a pipe dream. That wasn't true, it was not possible. It took one year from December 2008 to December 2009, one year to work on the scholarship. And what I had to do, I had to write Three papers, biographical essay, I had to talk about myself, study objectives, why I didn't, I didn't want to come to the United States, why I didn't want to study abroad, and personal statement, I had to choose a topic and write, write, write about it. I did it quickly, it wasn't a big deal, but there was a problem, typing. I did not have a computer back home, I even didn't know how to type. So I had to type those three pages, and I spent something like five hours typing those three pages. After typing them, I didn't know how to save it, how to save my file. The guy who was working there lost my file. He didn't know either how to work. So he lost and he said, I'm sorry. What? You're sorry? <laughs> That's too easy. Okay, I'm not going to blame you I'm out of a scholarship, I will drop it. I even didn't want to be part of it, so it's fine. Don't worry about it, goodbye. And I left. I went home, my uncle told me, if it's because of money, I can give you money, you will try it. I said, okay, if you have money, give me money. I didn't have money back home, let's be honest. He gave me money, 1,000 
it's almost $2.50. I went back and I typed. I was typing like this king. This is O, this is E. I typed again. I signed my papers. I gave it to them. Two weeks later, I received the phone call. Hey, Madi, we liked your work. Come to the embassy. I went. I thought it was all, but I had to go through a lot of processes. I took, it was an interview. There was an interview. They asked me a lot of questions. That's why I said at the beginning, coming to the United States is very difficult. After the interview, they called me again. Two weeks later, I took a test, TELP. After the TELP, they called me again. I said, oh, that's getting good. It's getting serious. And I took the TOEFL. Many of you don't know about the TOEFL, but my roommate knows about the TOEFL. <laughs> International students know about the TOEFL. I took the TOEFL and I got 523. What was required was at least 500. And if you had 550, you were good to go to come to the United States without troubles. I got 523. So oh, some of my friends got 550, 570. So I have to forget about this. They won't jump all those people and select me. I was sitting, after those 523, we worked immunization, a lot of st stuff. But I couldn't ask for help because I wasn't sure. I couldn't ask for my parents to give me money. And if I took the money and it didn't work, what would I say? So I kept it secret. I even didn't tell it to my dad. I was working alone. I had my money. I started working. And one day, I was reading. I was sitting in my living room alone. I was sad. My cell phone started ringing. When I picked up a sweet voice, a lady, she said, Semadi? I said, yeah. Tu as été retenu par le programme Fulbright. Tu dois être aux États-Unis le 9 janvier. What? Let me translate that for you. <laughs> you have been selected by the Fulbright program. You have to be in the United States on the 9th of January. Ooh. I said, ma'am, are you kidding? <laughs> she said, no, I'm not kidding. Do you have a passport? I said, no, I couldn't have a passport. It's too expensive to get a passport. And why, why would I get a passport? I said, okay, ma'am, that's not a big deal. I will start working on it. I was very happy. I spent 15 minutes sitting. I wasn't moving. I couldn't move. I started thinking about my situation, my hard situation, hard conditions in which I was studying back home. And when I stood up, I was moving like this. That's all I was doing. And then I jumped on my bicycle, vanished away. I went to a friend of mine. When he saw me, he was happy. I didn't know why. He started jubilating. Oh, this and this. I said, what's happening? Did I tell you something? He said, I know. I said, what do you know? I know it, it worked. I said, oh, who told you that? But let's not tell it to anybody. In Africa, we have a belief. I'm an African. If you have an important trip, don't talk about it to people. If you talk about it to people, you will not go. So we kept it as a secret. I called my dad. He was very happy. Now, I, my mom loves me a lot. So I thought she would not let me come. But finally, I told her, and she was happy. People were very happy around me. People were jubilating. But I wasn't happy. How was they dreaming? For me, I will receive 
a phone call telling me, oh, it was a mistake. Oh, my dear, it was a mistake. Oh, my sister will come and knock at my door. Wake up, it's Monday, go to school, and this dream will be gone. Oh, I was doing, I was still working, but it wasn't me. I couldn't feel myself, I was still in my dream. And one night, the big night, I found myself in the plane. So, uh, that's not a dream. That's reality now. I was very happy. I came to Atlanta. When I got there, I missed one of my flights. I didn't know where to go. I couldn't ask people because I had a wrong idea about America, I'll be honest with you guys. I thought that you could not ask for information to an American without giving money, as I, we see in movies. So I couldn't ask people. I went to a first desk. There was a lady. She said, go right, go left, go right, go up, come down. You will find it. <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of go right, go left. And in my country, we don't do that. We say, you see this big tree? If you cross the tree, you will find a lady selling fish. If you cross that lady, you will find a place. That's what we do in my country. And now they are telling me to go up and come down. I found my way anyway. <laughs> and I missed one of my flights. Someone was supposed to come and pick me up in South Carolina. I was in Atlanta. So I had to call the lady who was working with me. I called her. <laughs> that was a different English. Hey, listen careful. This is very serious. She was speaking like that. Okay? I said, no, ma'am. <laughs> That's not okay. Can you say that again? Three times. She was getting mad. I gave the phone to the lady next to me, and they talked. Finally, I got in the plane. I arrived in South Carolina, Columbia. The driver came, picked me up, put me in my apartment. Before leaving my country, I was told that if I was given a paper in America, I had to read it carefully before signing. But I was so tired that when they gave me the paper, the contract, I just signed. I wanted to sleep. I was cold. <laughs> the guy put me in my room, gave me a bottle of water, small bottle of water, a stick of chocolate, and I think one biscuit. I spent three days without food. But don't worry. I won't tell that, my, I won't, I won't tell that to my family if I go back. That's a secret. Three days without good food, without eating. It was cold. I couldn't go out. My roommate was a Chinese. He helped me find my way. Chinese are nice people. Helped me find my way. <laughs> and he introduced me to some Africans. And those Africans took me to a restaurant. There was a bunch of food. <laughs> I had a bunch of food. I was very hungry. And I started studying, I started studying. They asked me, in which college do you want to go? I said, oh, for me it's fine. Studying in, in the United States is already important. It's the best resume. I don't have to choose. And one day, I checked my email. You have been, you received admission. You have been accepted by Goshen College. So okay, that's good. I won't tell you what was my reaction. I will keep it. <laughs> I said, okay. I came to Goshen College. Uh, I would like to close by telling you that I'm not proud of the point of view I had about America. 
but you don't have to blame me. And I will not blame a person who has bad ideas about America. It's simply because that person is ignorant. I was ignorant. I didn't know about America. But today I realized, I learned, I discovered who Americans really are. And Americans are great people. Today, if you go to my country, my family, my friends, everybody has a different, a positive view about Americans. So I would like to close by saying thank you, by telling you that I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to study in the United States. Thank you very much.